Hey folks, Joyce Vance here. It was a big week at the Supreme Court. The justices heard oral argument in a pair of challenges to the Biden administration's student loan forgiveness program. In other news, the Department of Justice argued in a new court filing that former President Donald Trump is not entitled to immunity from civil lawsuits stemming from January 6th. And Trump is reportedly fighting to shield former Vice President Mike Pence from complying with a subpoena in the January 6th investigation. Preet Bharara and I discuss all of this and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're sharing a clip from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership for just $1 for one month. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. We look forward to having you as a part of the insider community. So we should remind folks that episode two of season two of Up Against the Mob with Ellie Honig drops tomorrow, March 8th. We should also remind insiders that they, as insiders, get access to exclusive bonus episodes each week. And one more thing, we have a virtual live taping of an insider bonus of Up Against the Mob on Tuesday, March 21st at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's live, Joyce. Not, it's not recorded. Head to cafe.com slash live to sign up. It's going to be fun. That sounds great. So on, on the substantive point, there are various things. One of which is, if you remember what I read from the statute a few minutes ago, where the Secretary of Education may waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision, waive or modify, those are the verbs. There's an argument that what is going on here on the part of the Biden administration is not waiving or modifying, but canceling. So there's a little bit, as often happens in legal argument, a semantic debate about what words mean. Now, I think there's general agreement that modify doesn't cover it. To cancel student debt doesn't seem to fit within the meaning of, of modify. But waive is a very broad verb and term. And why doesn't waive encompass cancellation of debt? Is this silly semantic argument or is there some merit here? Well, it's not, right? Because everything that we do as lawyers is silly semantic argument when you think about it. And even Justice Kavanaugh posed, I'm not sure how serious he was about it, but he posed that question at oral argument. You know, he said, waiver is broad. The word waive, as used in the statute, is very broad. I think the conservative comeback on that point would involve the fact that in other statutes where Congress has given, for instance, agencies the ability to cancel student loans, they've actually used the phrase cancellation of loans. Since they didn't use it here, so the argument goes, they didn't intend for WAVE to be that broad. I think that's a tough argument on the semantics, though. When you think about the purpose of this statute, which is to permit the executive to act in a nimble fashion during an emergency. And there's a little bit of an undertow here. And Preet, I wonder if you agree with this. I mean, we all know that Congress, even you know after September 11th, there are still political sorts of issues. There are some members of Congress who don't want to have to take votes that although they might benefit the country in an emergency, could harm them in future elections. This is a little bit of a mechanism for Congress to let the executive 
take that action so that they don't have to live with its political consequences. I suspect that that's why the act not only passes, but then gets amended a couple of years later for this broad expanse of language we now have that covers really any emergency, national emergency or act of war, not just September 11th. So this seems like what Congress intended. The president can act broadly. Yeah, look, that's the argument. The argument on the other side, or at least the the principle on the other side is not a crazy one. And that is the idea that you have to be careful when Congress is not perfectly clear to allow an executive branch to engage in conduct, which they defend in the courts, so that ultimately, and this is what the conservative justices are suggesting they're worried about, where you have you know significant political things being done and accomplished through the courts at the behest of the executive branch as opposed to Congress. And the question is, you know, what was the empowering language? Was it broad enough to cover some of these things? And this has come up again and again and again. The other thing we should talk about that's relevant to all of this, and the argument is being made about it in connection with these two cases, is what has become known as the major questions doctrine, which the conservative justice say applies when the underlying claim of authority concerns an issue of vast economic and political significance, whatever that means. We can talk about what that means. And second, when Congress has not clearly empowered the agency. I don't think it's crazy, you can send your letters to Joyce, I don't think it's crazy for there to be, on principle, a concern that any president and any administration can accomplish whatever it wants by reading into some grant of authority, whether it's the Clean Air Act or the HEROES Act or any other bill, something that they want to accomplish, but they they can't accomplish politically because there's not enough or sufficient bipartisan will. But I think the way that the major questions doctrine has uh, unfolded in the Supreme Court in recent times doesn't admit of any regulating principle. I don't know what the line drawing is. And it seems to be the case that when justices say, this is something that relates to the major questions doctrine, and it is of vast economic and political significance, it tends to be something that conservatives don't like as opposed to be rooted in some principle that can be enunciated clearly. Do you agree with that or not? I do, and I think that's exactly why this case became so interesting to me, because it's about the court's legitimate sphere of action when the executive branch and the congressional, the legislative branch, can't agree on something. The president can't get Congress to go along with something that he wants to spend money on, right? Congress has the spending power. And the question is, when can the courts get involved? You know, it's interesting, and we should probably point out that the Solicitor General says, whatever the major questions doctrine is, it doesn't apply here because the Department of Education isn't claiming extravagant regulatory authority that it doesn't actually have. She seems to think that that's the condition precedent for the major questions doctrine to apply. I think the court will blow past that argument in about two seconds because there is clearly some some toothiness here, some interest in talking about the major questions doctrine and Justice Roberts, who presumably will be assigning the person who will write the majority opinion, which I suspect will be himself, is very interested in developing this doctrine, which is, as you point out, is, you know, is it wrong to call it judicial activism made legitimate? Because that's what it looks like to me. There are no clear lines that are drawn. 
I can't read the older opinions and tell you in a principled way when it applies and when it doesn't apply. The only thing that I can distill from from the way it has been used, and it's been used increasingly in the last couple of years, even though it hasn't really, pundits call it by that name, the court a little bit less so, but ultimately it just seems to apply to cases where the court doesn't like what the federal government has done and their willingness to blow past the standing issue, which is where they should be deciding this case, to get to the major questions doctrine reinforces, I, I think, our sense that this is not a legal principle as we have traditionally understood those. It seems like a policy principle. And it's interesting when you say, when you said a minute ago that the conservative justices adopt this position and this approach, and should we not be calling that judicial activism? And I think that's a fair point to make. They will say that what they're doing in connection with the major questions doctrine is preventing judicial activism, is preserving for the political branches that which the political branches are supposed to be responsible for, being clear in how the country spends its money or doesn't spend its money. And when they're acting in this way that you call activist, it is to, it is to stop and prohibit the courts, in fact, from being activist and supporting an overreach by the executive branch based on unclear authorization by Congress. So this, this word activist or activism, it a little bit can be wielded on both sides, in one case maybe more fairly than in the other case. And that's what's so interesting here. It seems like whoever's in control of the court, right, decries judicial activism on the part of the other side. What we expect from the court is neutral decisions that aren't influenced by politics. And I think it's become problematic to expect that. But I think you point out that this is not just a concern that people maybe on our side of the political spectrum have, that you can legitimately express these sort of concerns, and people do, who are more conservative. So the question is, how does the court rule in these cases in a way that even for people who aren't satisfied with the outcome, they're satisfied with the process? And that takes us back to your criticism of the so-called major questions doctrine, as being a doctrine where nobody knows where the lines are. I think you made an important point earlier, echoing what the Solicitor General argued on behalf of the United States, that here you have the Department of Education making a decision and taking action on something that was you know, fully within and reasonably within its remit, as they say. Like the, you know, It's the Department of Education, and what is at issue here? Student loans. That's fully within their ambit. In other cases... There is maybe a slightly better argument on the part of conservatives generally when, for example, the Securities and Exchange Commission starts to do things in connection with you know, climate change and global warming. The argument is, well, that's not really the agency that's responsible for doing those things. And so to take a, a broad or unclear authorization of authority for Securities and Exchange Commission to do something on climate change is a little bit far afield. And when the major questions doctrine rears its head there, maybe there's a slightly better argument. And I think the Solicitor General, in recognition of that, tried to make clear that this was different from that. Right. I, I think she tried to draw some principled lines here about what sort of action might be so important nationally that it would qualify for the major questions doctrine. Because unless the court finally draws those lines, then it's always a possibility that a court could employ it in in any case where they don't like something, quote-unquote, big that the executive branch is doing. 
This, it seems to me, and I think this is your point, Preet, right? This is not a great case for the court to use to define the major questions doctrine simply for the reason that it's not an egregious overreach. And, and, you know, if all that the major questions doctrine is going to mean is that Congress has to have an immaculate crystal ball when it writes a statute, right? It essentially has to say, if there's a pandemic, then the president can cancel student loans for certain kinds of loan holders. Well, that really doesn't create the sort of scope of action that Congress clearly intended to create under the HEROES Act. You know, if I were the court, I might duck this one and wait for a case with better facts, as they say bad facts make bad law. But Roberts, at least, seemed to be chomping at the bit here. Is it bad—you said that last week. Is it bad facts make hard—I'm sorry, is it bad facts make bad law or is it hard facts make bad law? I always say bad facts make bad law. Right in, folks. <laughs> is it <laughs> is it bad facts make bad law or hard facts make bad law or hard cases make bad law? Some, something makes bad law. <laughs> there there um, might be variations there. Right to Preet, not me. <laughs> in fairness, Justice Roberts said something interesting, and I, I've been wondering what your take is on this. It is not always the case, and you can get the wrong impression from our conversation just now, that the major questions doctrine or this issue of whether or not Congress has authorized something broad does not always count against the Democratic administration or the, the so-called progressive or liberal policy. Uh, and at least one occasion went the other way. And Justice Roberts made a mention of it at oral argument. And he talked about how in 2020, in a case before the Supreme Court, it was progressives who said to the Supreme Court that Donald Trump could not abruptly end an Obama-era program that protected, you know, 700,000 young immigrants from immediate deportation, the Dreamers program. And the Supreme Court blocked that effort. Now, the court was had a little bit of a different makeup then, but that's a, that's the circumstance in which the court also blocked a broad policy change by an administration on somewhat similar grounds. Well, for one thing, the petitioners in that case, or, or rather I should say the parties in that case, had standing to challenge the administrative action, which seems to me to be a not insignificant fact. But but I think that this is a fair point, right? The problem is that Robert's question seemed to really tee this up as a political question that the court was being asked to decide. And I think that was the concern that this oral argument left me with. Roberts really showed a great willingness to stray from what are the legal principles that underlie our decision in this case to, well, let's engage in a game of political tit-for-tat here. And, you know, Justice Thomas dissented in the Dreamers case. And in his opinion, he complained that the court had greenlit this sort of what what he, I think, would have characterized as decision-making on behalf of the political branches well, if that was a principled view in his dissent in that case, he should have that same principled view here, but he did not seem to. So, Preet, I ducked your initial question about this case, which was, how do we think it's going to come out? But let's crystal ball it. What do you think happens? So, I, I think I think the likelihood is, and I hate predicting, but the likelihood is that the Biden administration loses. Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership for just $1 for one month. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who've chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work. Support for this show comes from Fundrise 
Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.